With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and Last week, we began a very special series on the podcast called Human Nature. For the next few weeks, we'll be sharing stories that are about our relationship with the natural world and the ways that it shapes us. This week, we have two stories from storytellers who either struggled with confidence or found it in themselves through their experiences with flora and fauna. Our first story today is from Kasia Majewski. It was recorded last April at her home in Ottawa. It's only my second field season ever, and I am way out of my comfort zone sitting next to one of Saskatchewan's last true remaining cowboys. His name is Andy, and he's my boss. With his cowboy hat and his oversized belt buckle, we are flying down a washed-out back road, and Andy is giving me tips on how to handle the driving conditions on roads like this. His number one tip is that when you get to a section of washed out road that's really muddy, instead of slamming on the brakes, you hit the gas. And he does every single time. And every single time the mud washes over our windshield, Andy goes, Yeehaw! And then he looks at me expectedly, and I go, Yeehaw! I can't do it as convincingly as Andy. I really want to be a yeehaw biologist, but I don't know how. Four years later, on the other side of the world, it's 8 a.m. and it's already scorching hot. It's my very last day at an off-grid field station in Malaysian Borneo. I've just finished my master's field research And that's when Rich, our snake guy, walks up to me to give me a little bit of bad news. He says that one of his animals, a reticulated python that he had put a radio transmitting collar on, has now been missing for 10 days. When we collar an animal, it becomes our responsibility that that animal remains healthy and thriving back in its natural habitat. So 10 days without having laid eyes on her was a problem. It was really worrying for us. Rich says he's putting a team together to go out and look for her. And he asks me if I want to come. 
Now, if I had to describe Rich, I'd say that even though he swears his Hogwarts house is Ravenclaw, and he is really well-read, everything from his blonde hair to his excessive knowledge of snakes puts him firmly in Slytherin. He tells me he's also going to bring Coco. Coco is one of the local research assistants who grew up on the river next to the field center. Borneo is in his blood. He regards crocodiles on the river the same way that Canadians regard potholes on the highway. And Rich tells me he's also going to bring Luke. Luke just arrived the night before. He's an undergraduate student, and at the moment, he's kind of looking at us like he's not really sure what he's signed up for. Well, we all grab our stuff, and we head down to the boats. We've packed our snake bag, and we've packed the antennae for the radio transmitting device, and we jump into the boat. It's our only way of transportation up and down the river, and as we head to the spot where the snake was last seen, we pass a couple crocodiles on the way. Eventually, we start picking up a faint ping, ping, ping over the antennae headset, telling us that we're heading in the right direction. We're approaching the collar. We shore up on the riverbank, and I follow the others out onto, onto the mud. Immediately, I'm knee-deep in silty mud. And I look up and down the riverbank to see if I can spot any crocodiles nearby. I try to heave myself up after the others into the elephant grass beyond. Now, I want to tell you something about elephant grass. I hate elephant grass. It gets its name from being tall enough to hide the elephants that frequent the riverbanks, but it also has serrated edges on the leaves. So as I pull out my machete to start hacking my way through it, it cuts up my hands and my arms and my face with a thousand little bloody cuts. We find a patch of elephant grass that looks the most likely, and we make a plan to surround it in a circle and start cutting our way to the middle, trying to find a place where our snake might be hiding. And because it's my very last day in Borneo, I know in my heart that I really want to bring home a happy ending to this story. I know what the risks are. I know that we might be hacking our way into this elephant grass to find a dropped collar, an injured snake, or worse yet, even a dead snake. And that is not what I want to find. So as I'm hacking my way through, fighting off the biting insects and feeling the sweat ease its way into the thousands of tiny cuts on my skin from the elephant grass, I have a sinking feeling in my stomach. And it gets worse when I see the faces of the others as they start appearing in front of me, because all of us look confused. After hacking our way for an hour or so through this elephant grass, we haven't found anything that looks like a hiding spot for a snake, or at least 
this specific snake because this snake is four meters long and 45 kilograms. And that's a lot of snake to hide. Exhausted, we sit down in the muck and we pull out our water bottles. And that's when I hear Rich say the words that I really don't want to hear. He says, we've been out here a long time, making a lot of noise. We might be attracting the crocodiles. I think it's time that we head back. Now, I trust Rich completely. He runs his project with precision. But the last few years, I've had a little voice growing in my head with every year of more fieldwork experience. And that little voice is telling me that there's something here that we're missing. And I think it was that little voice that made me look at Rich and say, let's listen to the headset just one more time Maybe it can give us a clue. Exasperated, Rich pulls out the headset and he cranks up the volume so we can all hear it. A clear and loud ping, 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 telling us that somehow this snake is nearby. And that's when, with the confidence of someone who's been around deadly animals his whole life, Coco says, Oh, maybe, and then he thrusts his whole arm into the mud, right in the middle of our circle, past his elbow, and then he looks up at us and he says, oh, snake, and then everything happens in triple time. Luke fires his way out of the mud like he's fired off an escape hatch. Me and Rich plunge our arms next to Coco's into the mud, and sure enough, there we feel it, the scales of our snake below us. We are sitting on her. None of us have ever read any accounts of reticulated pythons being able to bury their way into the mud like that, so it never even occurred to us, but suddenly it all made sense. There she was. Rich, Coco, and I grab the part of snake that we feel beneath us, and we start hauling her out of the mud. First one coil, then a second coil, then a third coil. And the whole time we're pulling her up, Luke is kind of hovering around us, and he's saying fragments of questions. He's trying to figure out how to help us, but we don't know how to respond to him. We don't know what to tell him to do because we are winging it. Everything I'm doing in that moment is based on the years of experience I've built up. And I don't know what's about to happen next, but somehow it all feels like it's going according to plan. That's when we realize we've pulled the snake up by her middle and two ends remain, but we don't know which end is which? This is not a problem you want to have with a reticulated python. In biology, it's generally accepted that one end of a snake 
is considerably bitier than the other end. I look at Coco and Rich, and I say this end first. My end. I base this on literally nothing other than a gut feeling. So we start pulling my end up, slowly now, wrestling with the rest of the snake we've already pulled out, inch by inch. Thankfully, being one of the biggest predators in Borneo means that this snake was not prepared to accept that something was big or stupid enough to try to pull her out of the mud. She didn't believe that she was being predated. So thankfully, she wasn't moving around too much. But still, I was on my hands and knees in the mud, level with this animal, and I was not sure if I was ready to face whatever was about to come out of the mud in front of me. Pulled her out a little more, and suddenly, out she comes. And with a resounding squelch, she shits all over us. We cheer. Luke whimpers. Rich cackles. Coco is surprisingly impassive, but probably delighted. And I am thrilled. We managed to get her entire body under control, and then we slowly pull out her head. With full control over her body, we can place her back into the snake bag and take her back to the boat and the field center. We give her a full health evaluation, and she's absolutely fine. We release her again the next day. I don't know what the official certification process for becoming a yeehaw biologist is. But that day in the mud, getting shit on by a python certainly felt like it was it. That was Kaja Majewski. Kaja is a science communicator, environmental biologist, herpetologist, entomologist, and general lover of ologies. Originally from Saskatoon, she has spent the last six years working and undertaking research in Vancouver, Japan, Wales, Malaysia, and most recently England, before returning to be with her family in Ottawa mid-pandemic. While she has many animal-related stories from her time at Vancouver Aquarium, Science World, the JET Program, and Manchester Museum, some of the ones that she recalls most fondly are from her master's research in Malaysian Borneo, where she studied the prey associated with Asian water monitor lizards. Before we move on to our next story today, I want to make sure that you all know that as we transition back to in-person shows, StoryClider will still be offering online shows and workshops, just on a less frequent basis. Our homestage communities, where it isn't yet safe to be back in person, will still be holding their local shows online, and will also still be holding occasional online science story slams. And we will also be holding occasional online science story slams. 
And we're going to have special one-off shows as well, such as our show centered around disability and STEM at the end of this month. Check out storyclider.org for more information. Our next story today is from Edith Gonzalez, who recently became StoryClider's first ever science advisory fellow. Check out our website for more information on that fellowship and the inspiration behind it. Edith's story was recorded last month in London, where she's currently doing research. It all started with the duck. I was in my PhD program at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and I lived in this big sort of brick Victorian house in a room that used to be a sun porch at the back. So it had these big windows that faced a wooden, like little wooded area that had a little cabin. And there was another graduate student who lived back there, but I never saw her. I only ever saw her car parked at the side of the house. But I didn't have any curtains on it because I just faced a wooded area. There was no reason for it. And I was startled because my friend Eric had come and was banging on the window in the backyard. So I went out and he handed me this newspaper wrapped parcel, which when I unwrapped it was a duck, a dead duck. And he's like, can you cook it? And I was known for being a pretty good cook. So I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't have any problem. I'll cook your, I'll cook the duck. So uh, I took the duck and I was like, okay, I've never had to cook a duck that had like head, feet, feathers, blah, blah, blah. So I just got a big knife from the kitchen and sat on the old wooden back porch and took off its head and its feet and its entrails and, and everything and then tried to pluck it, which was highly unsuccessful. So I ended up sort of doing a bad job of skinning it and then uh, I ended up cooking it with a lovely apricot sauce and couscous, and it turned out quite well. But, uh, you know, in the back there, I had to go clean it up, and there was just sort of gore, some gore everywhere. I wrapped it up in the newspaper and had to sort of shimmy down the side of the house to the trash bins, trying very hard not to leave bloody handprints on the back neighbor's car and pitch out the remains. And so it it all turned out well, but when I was cleaning up after dinner... I realized that I had these duck bones and I was there, I was at the University of Virginia to study um, archaeology and actually what, what some people might call historical anthropology. I was there working with um, an archaeologist, pretty famous archaeologist who sort of uh, defined my field and it was a little intimidating. He was a really nice and approachable person, but definitely intimidating to be working with him. And so I had this idea that I would save these bones and kind of bring them as a gift to the archaeology lab, who was in the middle of creating a comparative collection now, a comparative collection can be of different types of artifacts that you would find if you were excavating. So that if you find little like pieces of something on an archaeological excavation, you can bring them back to your lab and match them up to sort of the whole item to kind of figure out what the heck you have. And one of those classes of artifacts are bones. And so 
at the lab, they definitely had some comparative domesticated animal bones because a lot of the archaeology that we were doing for the historic time period had to do with the plantations and other kinds of big farming agricultural estates that they had had in Virginia. So they had a lot of domesticated animals that you would find on a farm. But here was a wild duck. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, you know, I, I had a sense of, so I bring it in and I show it to my professor and he's like, oh, this is great. Like he was very pleased to have the duck as part of his collection. Um, and I was still sort of, like I said, like a little shy around him. And, and he said, well, you know, I have a great idea for you for your term project for the semester. Why don't you collect wild food source animal bones? Like, why don't you collect stuff from the local area? Because we do come across that, and that'll give us some interesting information about the diet of people in the past. Um, and I was all very kind of gung-ho about this. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Because like, I basically would have said yes to anything he suggested as far as like what I should do for my research. But I was really there to study um, the lives of people who were enslaved during the historic time period. And so I was sort of like, okay, sure, not really on topic with what I want to do, but it'll be important. It'll help the lab. It'll help everybody. Like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I go home and I call my friend Eric. I was like, hey, Eric, where'd you get the duck? And he said, I hit it with my car. So basically, yes, we were eating roadkill. And so I was like, okay, fine. Well, I need to find a way to get more um, animal, wild animal food sources. So I was like, okay, sure. So he was like, all right. So I began to collect from different people these wild animal food sources, aka roadkill. And I had, uh, for that semester, I was like, oh God, what am I doing? And so like, I said, I just want things that people could possibly have eaten. So it started off with a couple of squirrels. Now, the thing about bringing bones to into a collection is you have to clean all of the gory bits and flesh off them. So people began to bring me smaller things like squirrels and I would possums. And I would go out into the backyard and just try and deflesh them. The first time I did this, I ended up with these like little articulated gory squirrel skeletons and I just put them in a bin of bran because that's what you do and you let the you know flies get to them and the maggots eat the dead flesh and it cleans them up really quickly but the first time I did this I defleshed some squirrels and again skinning around the girl's uh car to not cover it with blood and gore when I threw out the remains um the gory stuff uh, I put it in the bran, and in the middle of the night, just the sound of the raccoons tearing it to shreds just really was a little disturbing. And in the morning, it looked like a crime scene with little bodies, their little limbs outstretched and flung where two raccoons were fighting over them. And I also realized quickly, like, not to... Uh, do this on the back porch because scrubbing blood out of wooden floorboards is really difficult. <laughs> and and I began, as the semester progressed, to begin to process more and more of these animals. And I realized certain things, like it makes more sense to take the little remains and put them into a little um, 
cage, wire cage and bury the cage so that you don't lose any of the little um, phalanges or other little bones from the extremities as they're defleshed by uh, the natural elements. And things progress with various birds and, um, uh, and animals throughout the semester. And I realize at some point I start to get really sort of angry because I'm getting this reputation around town as the roadkill girl. Like people are dropping me off roadkill on my back porch all the time. And I'm like, how did this happen? Here I am, this kind of loudmouth Puerto Rican girl from Queens, and find myself in Charlottesville, Virginia, working with basically my uh, you know, intellectual idol to study the ancestors. I'm here because I want to really um, do work that's important to me, that's important to my family, and thinking about how can I give voice to people and understand people's lived experience that doesn't normally make it into the historical record. But instead, what I'm doing is digging holes in my backyard that if my landlord ever saw, he would freak out and chopping up roadkill and burying it. And all I can do is like when I'm out there hacking things apart, I look up into my bedroom and I see my beautiful altar with um, my Santeria altar with the, my candles and my saints. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm saying my prayer, like, how did I end up here? I asked my ancestors, how did I end up here? I shouldn't be burying things. I should be excavating. And so one day I come home and, and someone has said to me, hey, I got you this goat. I'm not supposed to be defleshing domesticated animals, but we didn't have a goat in the comparative collection. So I take this goat and it's like a Tuesday or something. And I dump it into this big cooler that I have and I put ice on it and I shove it under the back porch. And I sort of forget about it until about Saturday when I can deal with it. And I go back there and I'm like, goats don't smell so good to begin with. But in this particular case, it, they smell worse after being dead for a while and then spending a week inside a cooler with melted ice. So I sort of dump it out and I take this big black plastic bag that it was wrapped in and I have a tarp. And by this time, I sort of have a system. You know, I realize that you can't really wear gloves uh, to do this. It's better to just get filthy and gross and then hose yourself down. Um, and that having it been dead for a while, it'll be easier to get its skin off, but it's a kind of a big animal. So I've laid out my butchery knives and dissection kit, and I have sort of built a little cage for it so I can bury it. And I'm back there and that, you know, Silence of the Lambs really works. And I've put Vicks under my nose and wrapped my face in a, in a, um, bandana as we did prior to like, uh, <laughs> prior to pandemic, my strategy. So I'm out there and I'm start, and I'm just really getting my hands under the skin. Um, you know, you make this long incision and you basically peel its skin off. Like you're taking a jacket off. It comes off, turns the sleeves inside out and I'm hacking away at it. And I'm really, again, like 
questioning my life choices and how the hell did I find myself here? Because when people ask me, hey, what are you doing your PhD in? I kind of, it it's not an easy answer. I never just say like, oh yeah, I'll, uh, so usually I fumble and just say, yeah, I'm studying archaeology. And they're like, oh, like dinosaurs. No, that's paleontology. Or like, oh, Indiana Jones. Or, or I say, I'm a historical anthropologist studying slavery. And they're like, yeah, well, how'd you end up being roadkill girl? So I'm sitting there like trying to get the skin off of this goat lost in thought when I hear behind me, <gasps> And I realize it's the girl that lives in the cabin behind my house. And I whirl around and I'm holding this big knife and my face is covered and I am gore from, you know, I'm gore to the eyebrows. And her eyes, I've never seen this in real life. Like in a cartoon where someone's eyes like bug out of their head and then snap back in, her eyes are so big that it looks like they're just going to pop right out of her head. And... I look around and, and I see her look from like my face to my hands to the carcass that I've just thrown a tarp over so she can't quite see what it is, but you can see that it's big. And then she looks around the yard and I realize that she can see what basically looks like an open grave, materials for building a cage. And then if you look up to my room, you can see my Santeria altar. And then I turn around and look at her and I realize she thinks I'm a serial killer. So I said, it's okay. It's okay. And she's, she's still looking like frozen. Like, should she flee or call the police? And I said, it's okay. I'm an archaeologist. was Edith Gonzalez. Edith is known to her friends as the Puerto Rican Mr. Spock. She's a historical archaeologist focusing on 18th century bioprospecting in the English-speaking Caribbean, and she has four graduate degrees in various subfields of anthropology. Dr. Gonzalez has a completely inappropriate obsession with Lord of the Rings and is a two-time Smut Slam champion. The Story Collider is so grateful to Kaja and Edith for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's program director, Anissa Greenberg, and senior podcast editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and our Marketing Manager Nakisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Misha Gajewski and Nissa Greenberg and recorded by Misha Gajewski. Our theme music is by Ghost. Stay tuned next week for our next episode of Human Nature. Until then, thank you for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.